Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. <clears throat> Paul says, For this reason, I, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. <clears throat> by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lord, may you add your blessing to the reading of your word, your blessing to the study and the proclamation in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been working our way slowly, very slowly, <laughs> through Ephesians, but it's been a wonderful exercise for me personally, hopefully for you as well. If you were with us the last time, and I can't really remember how long ago that was, some weeks ago, or months, um, we considered verses 19 through 22 in chapter 2, and Paul gives three metaphors in those verses, three pictures regarding God's chosen people, the church, a city, a family, and a temple. And the first metaphor or picture of a city, Paul says, we're citizens. We're citizens with all the saints in the city of God, Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. All the saints share in this heavenly citizenship in Christ, we are all citizens of God's eternal kingdom. We belong together in God's city because we belong to God in Christ. The city of our God is our heavenly home. It's where we belong. It's an important thing to remember, right? When our hearts begin to get engrossed in things of this world. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The city of God where we belong. The kingdom of God. Second metaphor is a family. He says in verse 19, you are of God's household in chapter 2. We belong to the family of God. We're of God's household. God is our father. Christ is our brother. Believers are children, God's children, in God's family. So if you remember, we asked the question, what's it look like? What does it mean to be in God's household? What does it mean to have God as our Father, Christ as our brother? And just how exactly should we think about that? 
Think about God's family. What's it look like in God's household? Well, we looked at several things. This is by no means exhaustive. But in God's family, in God's household, we can see from Scripture His compassion. In God's family, we see His compassion. We see His mercy. We see His kindness. The household of God, right? The family of God. We see His generosity. How generous God is. It's part of His joy to give. We see His tenderness. We see His love. His goodness. This is in the household, the family of God. We see His faithfulness. We see His holiness. This is just a small sampling from Scripture. You can go back and listen to the message um, for the Scriptures that support these identifiers that help us understand what life looks like in the house of God. And Paul reminds his Christian readers that they are of this household. The third metaphor was a picture of a temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Temple. The Greek is naos, metaphorically in reference of a company of Christians. A Christian church as dwelt in by the Spirit of God. Yeah, it's um, Paul is, he's referencing the church. Well, he says it in verse 22. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Doesn't that change the way you think in any given moment? if you really comprehend, grasp the truth that God is present. So that truth is truth. We wrestle with it because we can't see him. Right? But with the eyes of faith, we do see him. We see him clearly. And that governs how we live. When we understand where we dwell in the very presence of God, earlier in the Sunday school class we were talking about, and we use it a lot here, Quorum Deo, before the face of God. That's where we live. So all of this is, the whole message is summed up in verse 22. It's only by the work and power of God's Holy Spirit that we are God's dwelling place. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ. By his doing, not your doing, his doing. How gracious. Why? Why, God? Why would you do that for me? You know what I hear? Because I wanted to. Because I wanted to. By his doing, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Uh, it, it really does elicit from us a heart of gratitude. Thank you, 
God. I don't deserve it. I freely confess that quickly. But I am so profoundly thankful, so thankful. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. The Spirit of God is the one who reveals what we have from God. It's amazing. In Christ, we have our citizenship in the city of God. In Christ, we belong to the family of God. In Christ, we are the temple of God. In Christ, we are the dwelling place of God, Spirit, all from God. So this finally brings us to chapter 3. You're probably wondering if I was ever going to get there, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, I think in many of your Bibles, there's a comma after the, after the word I. For this reason, I. Uh, it's as though Paul pauses in the middle of his thought, interrupting himself with something and, you know, that's on his mind. And he does this pretty often. He's pretty frequently, Paul will do this in many of his writings. The last half of verse 1 and all the way through, uh, through verse 13 of chapter 3, it's a digression. It's a parenthetical statement. If you drop down to verse 14 in your Bible, he completes his thought. There's no comma after I. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. His first thought was a prayer. Praying for these believers, praying for these Christians. And the question is, why did Paul do this? And what was it that grabbed his attention, interrupting him right in the middle of his thought? Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison. And he also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, also known as the prison epistles. So he's in prison, and he knew that these Ephesian saints were aware of that fact. So he was concerned for them. His concern was that these dear saints might become anxious about his well-being and the future that lie ahead. More importantly, Paul was concerned that they may even be discouraged, become discouraged, frightened at his sufferings and tribulations as a prisoner and be overcome with sadness and uncertainty about the Christ, what the Christian life was all about. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3, Ephesians. I therefore, he says, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Paul wanted to encourage and reassure these saints by reminding them of the glorious gospel, the mystery of Christ, of which they were all partakers. And this is such a sweet picture of pastoral care. And Paul was a pastor. I mean, he's he an apostle. But he had the heart of a shepherd, a care for God's people. God's people are precious to God. God loves his people. He cared for God's precious people. 
God's flock. Consequently, he encouraged them with God's promises, God's word, God's good news, the gospel. And this is what all true faithful shepherds do, right? Pastors, shepherds, overseers, leaders appointed and assigned to their position by the Spirit of God himself, which we read about in Acts 20. Yeah, they preach and teach God's word. They preach the gospel. Suffering and persecution are very much part of the Christian life. And we really should expect suffering and persecution. Paul told Timothy, again in prison, toward the end of his life, he's cold, he's in prison, and the prisons then aren't like the prisons now. But he told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's something that it's not foreign to the Christian life. And Paul, after being stoned and dragged out of the city in Lystra for preaching the gospel, along with Barnabas, went back into the city in order to encourage and strengthen those new believers. And they said this to those new believers, those new disciples. Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Peter said the following in his letter, First uh, Peter 2, for if you have been called, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to, for you to follow in his steps. So, Paul didn't mince words, and he's concerned because we can get easily discouraged, frightened, distracted, turn away. And while it is true that in this life, the life of a true Christian is a life that includes suffering, it is equally true that in this life, the life of a true Christian is a life of great joy. Great joy, great peace, great assurance. God told Jehoshaphat, we were talking about this earlier, the battle is mine. The battle is mine. That brings assurance. If God is going to fight the, the battle, who do you think is going to win? Almighty God, El Shaddai, God Almighty. What peace. Jesus said this in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. Or blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Does that bring peace? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're blessed. Blessed, blessed, rejoice if you're being persecuted, if you're following in the path of Christ, right, who left us the example 
We're blessed. First Peter 4, Peter says this, Beloved, <clears throat> this is verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory in God rests upon you. What an evidence. The Spirit of God rests upon me? Just the way the Spirit of God rests upon Christ. We have all the fullness of the Son because of the position we have. And so Peter's saying it's an evidence. You are a partaker in the life of God. And he also says this in 1 Peter 5. This is one of my favorite life verses as well. 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11, after you have suffered for a little while, which presumes you're going to suffer, the God of all grace who called you to his own, to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It's a wonderful promise when you're being discouraged, when you're being beat up, God himself will strengthen, confirm, establish you. God himself. Why? Because you belong to him. Paul refers to himself as the prisoner of Christ Jesus in verse 1 of Ephesians 3. But in fact, he was a prisoner of Rome. He's waiting for his hearing before Caesar. And what was the reason for Paul's imprisonment? Why was he there? <clears throat> well, he states it very clearly in the verses we read, verses 1 through 6. But he says in verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise, and that's the, that's the phrase fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When he said that, um, that was, and we'll read about this um, in Acts, Acts chapter 22, but he was in prison for what he said in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the promise through the gospel. I mean, this was unthinkable to the Jews. That Jews and Gentiles are one and are together. God? The God of Israel? And this was unthinkable. That Jews and Gentiles would be one. One in God. The title of the message, The Mystery of Christ. The Gospel. Yeah, this was thought so blasphemous to the Jewish way of thinking that the only acceptable solution was to kill Paul, to kill him for saying such a horrendous thing. 
So if you look at Acts 22, while making his defense before the Jews in Jerusalem, um, after he was falsely accused, this is what he stated, Acts 22, 21. He said to me, go. So he's making his defense, if you're familiar with the text. And they're quietly listening to his defense until he says this. And he, speaking of God, Paul says, said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And after hearing Paul's statement regarding the Gentiles, the Jews said, verse 22 of Acts 22, I mean, they listened to him up to this statement, then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. I don't think we have a real understanding of just how caustic that statement was to the Jewish ear. I read this before in one of our earlier studies, but I'd like to quote it again. This is from R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Ephesians to give us kind of a sense of this um, division, how deep. Quote, A study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions None of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. The Jews believed that the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto was the best of serpents crush, the best of Gentiles kill. It wasn't lawful for a Jew to aid a, a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world, close quote. So this division between Jew and Gentile was extreme. Their separation colossal. The Jews looked with contempt on any Gentile, any non-Jew. They were viewed um, and thought of as dogs, and they were those who were outside the covenants, in the promises of God. So in the mind of the average Jew, he was superior in every way. In the Jewish mind, there were just the two were just simply not in the same class or on the same level. And consequently, the Gentiles were derogatorily referred to with much contempt as the uncircumcised the Gentiles in the flesh. So, the glorious mystery. This glorious mystery of Christ, namely the, the Gentiles' oneness with God's chosen covenant people, meant that all the covenant promises that the Jews thought were theirs, they were given to the Gentiles, to the Jews and the Gentiles. They belong to the Gentile believers also, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. They're yes. Therefore, also through him, Christ, is our amen to the glory of God through us. So you can, just for a moment, think of these Ephesian saints. And of course, this was a circular letter, but these Gentile believers who... Um, knew that Paul was sitting in prison for teaching this doctrine, 
that the Gentiles were recipients of all the covenant promises of God made to the Jews. Paul wants to encourage them. And I think this morning, he wants to encourage us. When your doubt rears its ugly head, you know what the solution is for doubt? The word of God. The promises of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 94, verse 19, when anxiety spins up within me, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Turn to the promise of God. Turn to his word. All the promises are ours, according to Paul. So this morning, we're going to focus on three things in verse 6 in particular of Ephesians 3. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. So let's look at uh, fellow heirs. To be, he says in verse 6, to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. So what does it mean? What does Paul mean when he says to be fellow heirs. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. How are we to understand that? Or how would really his Gentile um, readers uh, understand what it meant to be fellow heirs? And why would it be important, really, for Gentiles, for Gentile believers, to understand Paul's insight into the mystery of Christ? The Apostle Paul wanted these Jewish and Gentile believers to understand the significance of what it means to be fellow heirs. Not just heirs together, but fellow heirs in Christ, which is the mystery of Christ. Both groups, while separated in the eyes of men because of ethnic and cultural differences, were united as one in Jesus Christ through faith in the eyes of God. They both share in the Abrahamic covenants and the promises of God, which God made and gave to Abraham and his sons. All who are of faith and believe, as Abraham did, are sons of Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, we read this. Paul says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer." So here's the question this morning. Are you of faith? Are you one of the sons of Abraham because you're a believer? And if you are a believer, do you understand what standing and what position you have in the presence of God? What does it mean to be an heir, a son? Verse uh, 16 in Galatians 3. Now the promises 
or spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So, and he says, verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, did not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And then in verse 26 of Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And that's the comforting mystery. That's the mystery revealed. If you believe in Christ, you are a, an heir, a partaker. And that is the wonderful news to us Gentiles and really to every human, every Jew or Gentile. What brings in uh, being an heir is faith in Christ. So what Paul is saying is whether you're a Jew or Gentile, if you have faith in Christ, you belong to Christ and are fellow heirs of God with Christ. And then he does make this, well, another verse to just kind of support that um, is in Romans chapter 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So it's the Spirit of God himself that testifies with our spirits that we, in fact, are children of God, heirs. Um, Hebrews chapter 6 says this in verse 17, In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. We are heirs. Secondly, we're members, we're fellow members of the body. He says in first, again, uh, Ephesians 3, 6, fellow members of the body. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a fellow member of the body? I mean, how does Paul intend for his readers to understand this notion of actually being considered a part of Christ's body? Well, let's go look and see what the scripture might say about that. Um, Romans chapter 12, verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul wants all the saints, both Jew and Gentile alike, to know that they belong to Christ and to each other. 
just as every part of our human body belongs to that specific human, right? And each part has its own function and purpose, and that's by design in order to serve the body for the good of the body. So it is in the body of Christ. That's a mystery. It's something that we need to consider, comprehend, think through. How vital each part. I mean, you know, you wouldn't look at your thumb and say, eh, I don't really like the design of where God put my thumb. I'm going to stick it where my nose goes and take my nose and put it on, you know. I mean, that's absurd. We wouldn't do that. But the propensity to do that within the body of Christ, disregarding someone's gift, dis- disregarding someone's call, disregarding that, you know, what God has given this person for whatever the reason, we have to guard against that. And Paul is making a very clear argument that just the way, the same way our bodies um, physically function, the body of Christ is also each, each person is placed. Um, listen to what he says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are all Christ's body, and individually members of it. So how should this truth that we are fellow members of the body of Christ affect the way we think and behave? We follow Christ's example and how he nurtures and cares for his body. You know what? If this has been choppy and I apologize, my having a hard time keeping my thoughts, but I, I want to get through this. I really think it's important. We, as we're th- we've already covered um, being heirs. We're now talking about the body and thinking about what it means to be a vital, functioning member of God's body, the body of Christ. And what should we be doing as we serve each other? Is it for each other? Or is it for Christ himself, the head of the body, right? Um, there should be nurturing. I mean, what, what should this life look like, being a fellow member of the body? There should be nurturing. So, dear sister Elaine, Joan Elaine just demonstrated that a little bit, practically. Tending to the body of Christ, just as we nurture and tend to our own physical body. Remembering that Christ's it's, it's Christ's body that we serve. We follow Christ's example and how he nurtures and cares for his body. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. We do that every morning. We get up and we nourish and cherish our bodies, right? We feed our bodies and make sure that we get rest, Paul's saying, have that attitude toward the church. Care for the church. Care for the body of Christ. He says in verse 30 of Ephesians 5, because we are members of his body. There should be acceptance. So there should be a nurturing and attending. And there should be acceptance and appreciation for each member of the body. I must look like I'm sweating up here. 
Sorry, but thank you. Don't, if you get cold, raise your hand and I'll shut it. Um, yeah, there should be acceptance and appreciation for each member of the body, just as there is with our physical body, because God is the one who designed and placed each member according to his own desire. So you think about that. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, says this, but now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. So if we really believe that to be true, God has placed the member. We accept the member of the body. Don't you find that our propensity is to argue in the flesh? I mean, sometimes we have disagreements. We can't see the other person's point of view. We don't. So many times we separate. We wouldn't do that with our own bodies. If I smash my thumb that I just talked about, I'm not cutting it off. I'm taking care of it. Anyway. And mostly, we need to remember that it's God who's placed each member in the body as he desired. So there should be concern for the unity in the body of Christ, for all the members of the body of Christ, um, just as there is for our physical body. And no one wants any part of their physical body to be dismembered or separated. It's unnatural. It's a very traumatic and emotional experience when a person has an amputation or there's some part of their body missing. And so it is with the body of Christ. That's the notion. Um, there, there can't be division. There can't be division in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is for Christ. We are one body in Christ, and God himself has placed each member in the body as he desires. Therefore, we're to care for one another since we are members of one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Paul is trying to teach us just how unified we are in the spirit of God we're one one in Christ one with each other so to sum up this truth um, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and I'll just read this section 11 through 16 and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. And that's the point. Every joint, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Brothers and sisters, we need each other, and that's by design. And we need to depend on each other's gifting. This church is not run by a select few. This is the body of Christ. The church belongs to Christ. What you do, you do for Christ in the good of his body. Why? Because you are a fellow member of the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, we are partakers of the promise. The promise in Christ. This is thrilling to Gentiles, and but to every believer, but that God, by design, promised to every human heart that he chose, he promised. His promise cannot fail. Listen to this promise. I just have a couple here I'd like to read. We're fellow partakers of the promise in Christ. What promise? Jeremiah 32, verse 38 through 40. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away. When you're tempted to turn away, you can't. You might for a moment, but the promise of God cannot be broken if you belong, if you are a fellow partaker of the promise. How are you a fellow partaker of the promise? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Repent and believe and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, and Paul is attacking these Judaizers, these people who are trying to put these precious saints in Galatia back under the burden of law-keeping. Christ redeemed us, he says, Galatians 3.13, from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We are fellow partakers of the promise. God promised his Holy Spirit. He also promised eternal life. 1 John 2.25 This is the promise, John says, which he himself made to us, eternal life. If you're a believer here this morning, 
and you're a fellow partaker of the promise, you are going to live forever with God. That is our assurance. It's his promise. Yeah. So to know the mystery of Christ, to know that we are fellow heirs and fellow members of Christ's body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ is a knowledge that is so transcendent, so glorious, so wonderful that any suffering or persecuted saint would be lifted to the heavens once enlightened and fully convinced of this amazing, glorious, comforting truth. The truth of the mystery of Christ transcends all of our suffering and persecution. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, that's some math, isn't it? Paul's looking at the sufferings. and there's, We're not, for a moment, diminishing the sufferings that are going on in this room with family members, with friends, with yourself. Paul's not diminishing that. He's just saying, I, for I consider. It's like doing a debit, a credit and debit sheet. The sufferings over and against the glories. 1 Corinthians 2, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. I love that truth. We love that truth. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And that's the point. God has revealed to us all that's ahead in Christ, our life now and then, it's a glorious mystery that you've been brought to. Therefore, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your, your law. So this is the message of the gospel. This is the gospel message, the mystery of God revealed in Christ. Let's reread our verses in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. 
For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your saving grace, for your kindness to choose us to be yours, to make us heirs, to make us fellow members of your family the household of God, and to be fellow partakers of the promise. This is all your gracious work, all your kindness, all your glorious love and mercy that never ends, never will end. May we know you, the power of your resurrection, being conformed to the death of Christ. Lord, help us to live for you as we've been learning in Romans, to die to ourselves, that we may be raised to walk in newness of life, to live life in the Spirit the way God does. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.